You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Hello, everybody. I am indeed Tamara Cherry. It feels like forever since the last time I've been on the radio. I know that in reality, it's only been ah, a week and a half, something like that. I was on a roundtable in Toronto, but I have not I have not hosted Evan's show, I think, for a good few months. So thanks very much for having me back, broadcasting live from my home office in Regina, Saskatchewan. I want to tell you a little bit about some adventures I went on this past week because they got me thinking about some things. And we're going to be talking about some of those things a little bit later on in the show. So my mother-in-law is visiting right now from Brazil for the better part of the month. It's the first time we've seen her in more than three years. So, uh, you know, we've got three young kids, regular listeners have heard me talk about them before. They're three, five, and seven, almost four, almost six, and almost eight, actually, they would remind me. And so this, this trip is a big deal. So to break up her stay we decided to take a bit of a road trip out to the mountains. This is something I used to do all the time when I was living in Regina, growing up, going to university uh, before moving out to Ontario, where I worked as a reporter for CTV News for a while and some other newspapers out there. Now, if you follow me on Twitter at Tamara Chair, you know that since moving back to Saskatchewan about a year and a half ago, I have loved to share pictures of the beautiful Saskatchewan sky. Because after nearly 15 years of reporting on murders and traffic fatalities and human trafficking and all of that awful stuff that happens in this world in Toronto, the big ever-changing Saskatchewan sky brings me peace. And so does driving through the province with the bright yellow mustard fields and endless hay bales and abandoned farm homes. And onto the mountains, I have driven through Canmore and Banff countless times but every single time they take my breath away, they're absolutely incredible, as I'm sure anybody who's listening to this program right now and who has been to Banff National Park can attest to. We've had a, fir- a few firsts on this trip. Uh, on one very, very, very hot day last week, we swam in the very cold waters of Quarry Lake in Canmore. If you haven't been, I would absolutely recommend it. It is stunning. Uh, we also went out to Takaka Falls, which is about an hour and a half past Banff. Uh, I learned while I was there from a sign that in Cree, Takaka means it is magnificent. And I'm telling you, this waterfall truly is magnificent. Again, something I would absolutely recommend. Wow. And we also had a picnic next to the turquoise waters of Moraine Lake. That also was absolutely incredible. And all this got me thinking, as I have many times before, about what an incredible country we live in. I've not been everywhere in Canada, but I have been through a lot of places right from coast to coast. And this country is stunning. It's so beautiful. But this trip got me thinking about something else, too, because this was my first time driving to the mountains from Saskatchewan in probably a decade. And a part of driving to Alberta that I'd forgotten about were the oil fields and all the pump jacks scattered through the fields on the sides of the highway. The last time I drove drove through those fields on the way to the mountains, the oil industry was not doing so hot. Of course, we all know what happened a couple of years ago when people stopped driving and flying and the oil patches hit rock bottom and a barrel of crude oil was pretty much literally worthless. And yes, this had been brought on by the pandemic, but it also followed several punishing years for the oil industry. 
this was a time, uh, you know, last time I drove through these mountains or to, over to the mountains, we were all talking about, you know, collectively talking more and more anyway, about different cleaner sources of energy, electric vehicles, combating climate change. And then almost in an instant earlier this year, the Russian invasion of Ukraine changed everything. Sanctions on Russia have been a goldmine for the oil industry. As we all suffer at the pumps, the oil industry is laughing its way to the bank. Then this past week, we learned that the transformative $2 trillion climate change program that would wean the United States from fossil fuels that President Joe Biden had largely campaigned on was essentially dead. Of course, by last week, it had already been weaned down to energy tax breaks and subsidies for electric vehicles, a far cry from what Biden had campaigned on before it was finally killed by a Democratic senator who was worried that it could exacerbate inflation. But of course, isn't that what we're all thinking about these days? Inflation. Have we really been thinking about climate change at all since the pandemic began? It seems that we have been jumping from one huge life-changing issue to another. The pandemic, worrying about our health, the health of our loved ones, being scared, not knowing what was going to happen. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine, which continues inflation, all the supply chain issues that are going on and on and on. A little bit later in the show, I want to hear from you on this. Is the climate change crisis still a priority for you? Maybe it is if you are out in BC, where towns once again are being threatened by wildfires. And we all remember what happened last year. Maybe it is if you are planning a trip to the UK or, or maybe you're in the United Kingdom right now where they're expecting, I think, one of the hottest days ever today. And we've all seen what's happened in years past with, with people dying, especially vulnerable people, seniors, people who are living uh, in, in homes without air conditioning. Maybe it's a priority for you then. But maybe if you're here in Canada and you're away from the wildfires and you're sitting in your air-conditioned home or your office or your car, wherever you are, maybe you're not really thinking about that because it's hard to think about big picture issues when your grocery bill is a hundred bucks more expensive than the last time around. And that is the reality I know for a lot of people in this country for now. It's it, right now, it, it certainly is for our household, you know, as a household of five. Uh, I mean, six, the last couple of weeks and for the next few days, um, it's it's a lot going to the grocery store. It's a lot going to the gas pump. We just drove out to Alberta. I haven't calculated exactly how much we spent on gas, but it's been a lot. Um, so I want to hear from you on that a little bit later on in the show. You can give us a call. And as always, you can, of course, send us a text message as well to the show, text us at 71010. Give us a call at 1-855-633-1010. But coming up after the break, we're going to be diving a little bit more into this issue with Michael Bernstein. He's the executive director of Clean Prosperity, which is a Canadian nonprofit that works toward market-based solutions to the climate crisis. And of course, Michael Bernstein is no uh, stranger to this show. But then I just mentioned that we it's hard to talk about big picture items when your grocery bill is so high. We also want to talk about, we may be talking a little bit about the very big picture issues, which is um, those amazing pictures that were released from the biggest, most powerful satellite uh, that went into space late last year. They were just released by the United States. Well, you might not know 
but there were some Canadians that played a very significant role in that. And I am absolutely fascinated by this topic. Absolutely fascinated. Also, there's a significant decision coming down in Ottawa today. The bail decision for one of the so-called Freedom Convoy organizers, Pat King, he was supposed to find out this morning whether he would be released on bail. Will he be released on bail? Uh, Was he released on bail? We're going to be talking to CTV's Glenn McGregor about that. I also want to ask Glenn about word that we're getting today that Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, who was until recently also one of the candidates for the conservative leadership race, uh, he will be running for Brampton Mayor again. So there's probably some councillors there that aren't too happy about this. We've been hearing some griping from them in weeks recently. Uh, We've got a whole bunch of great stuff we're going to be talking about on the show today. But again, I'm going to be asking for your calls and texts over the next couple of segments about the climate change crisis. Is this something that you are talking about? We're also going to be talking about something going on in Montreal right now where the children's hospital there is has been overwhelmed. They're at almost 200% capacity with an unusually high number of sick kids being brought into the Montreal ER. We're going to find out what is going on there, whether it is cause for concern. Uh, but for now, sit back, enjoy the ride. Thank you for listening to The Evan Solomon Show. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in today. We'll be right back after the break. This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, depending where you are in this wonderful country of ours today. I am in Saskatchewan, so it is a good morning for me. But if you are listening to us a bit east from here, it is hopefully a good afternoon for you. Now, As we started off the show, I was telling you about a trip I recently took out to Alberta and how it was sort of weird driving through all these beautiful places and thinking about what a wonderful, beautiful country we live in, but then also going through the Alberta oil patches and thinking about how climate change, the issue of climate change seems to have changed, at least like in in voters' minds. There was a New York Times article recently that that showed that uh, climate change is not really top of mind for voters in the United States. And there's been a lot of stuff going on there in terms of changing climate plans. And there's all sorts of questions that I have for our next guest that I'm excited to dive into with. And Michael Bernstein is the executive director of Clean Prosperity, which is a Canadian nonprofit that works toward market-based solutions to the climate crisis. Michael joins us now. Michael, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So, okay, so first, I just want to talk to you about this issue because I was reading this New York Times article last night and it was saying, as I just mentioned, that, you know, voters aren't really thinking about this. So, well, there's huge stuff going on in the United States with Joe Biden's $2 trillion climate change uh, plan essentially being dead in the water. It's not really top of mind. Are you finding that? Are you hearing that or sensing that here in Canada that people aren't thinking about climate change as much as maybe they used to be? Uh, well, the good news is no, I'm not. Uh, I We are actually just about to release a poll of Canadians uh, later this week. And 
Um, it is definitely true that the top concern for Canadians, uh, understandably so, is cost of living, inflation and all the associated issues that go with that. But Canadians still want to see credible climate policy. And so the clearest indicator of that is that when we ask people, you know, could you vote for a party that didn't have a credible climate change plan, uh, over half, I think it was about 55%, said no. Um, so this is an important issue. It's not their most important issue. And I think that's what, kind of what the New York Times missed, actually, is that they may not answer it's their most important issue, but they still care about it. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so let's talk about uh, this discussion paper that's that is coming out or has come out today from the environment minister uh, that is supposed to be giving us the first glimpse of how the liberals are expected to implement the oil and gas emissions cap that was promised in last year's election. What do we know about this paper and what what we're going to be learning about today? Well, we know the federal government is committed to reducing emissions very significantly from the oil and gas sector over the next seven and a half years by 2030. And today they laid out the two ways they are considering uh, achieving that goal. Um, the first is to use the existing carbon tax system that we have in place today and making some changes that make those policies a little bit stricter, maybe raising the price, etc. And the second option is putting in a new regulation uh, a cap-and-trade system, which essentially says, look, no one can emit more than this level of pollution by, uh, by 2030, um, and sort of forcing emissions down that way. So that's really, that, that was the key development today. And, and how is this being received by, by the different sectors that this is obviously going to impact from, you've been, from what you've been able to gather? Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of passionate views on many different sides of this. And I think the reality mm -hmm. is we're in a challenging position in Canada because um, it's really important that we reduce emissions, not only to make our own contribution to, to climate action, but also because we know there's a lot of opportunity in the low carbon economy, a lot of investment and in jobs that can come with it. But at the same time, we obviously have a very strong reliance on the oil and gas sector today in our economy. And there's certain regions of our country that are particularly uh, benefiting, rightfully so, from those resources. So there's a real tight tightrope act uh, or, uh, to walk here. And so you have industry saying that they are supportive in theory of, uh, of a cap, um, but they have some concerns about how fast and how deep to make those cuts, and they want to see flexibility. Uh, and then you also have environmental advocates saying we need to go further faster. So you really have a, a wide range of views. So I'm interested to hear what you think about what's going on right now in Alberta, because like I mentioned earlier in the show, the, the price of a barrel of crude, like it was rock bottom a couple of years ago, this time last year, a little bit earlier. And now it's through the roof. You know, the people in the oil industry in, in Alberta are laughing their way to the banks right now. Do you think that our reliance on that oil now because of what is going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, do you think that that is going to sway opinions, Canadians' opinions or political opinions at all on how we value that that oil coming out of Alberta? Yeah, I, I think it already has. I think it's actually changed the conversation all around the globe, certainly throughout Europe that uh, has some immediate concerns about having enough energy. And I think within Canada, understanding that we have to figure out a way to do two things at once. We've got to take real action on climate, but we also have to understand that in the short term in particular, that oil and gas 
is is what we use primarily to heat our homes and to, to energize our transport and our industry. So I think it's now. Uh, clearer than it was before that there's the right policies are going to be ones that balance those things and figure out how do we reduce emissions, for example, without necessarily focusing on reducing production in the short term. Hmm. And what did, and what do you, what was your reaction last week to the news that we got out of the United States about this Democratic senator essentially killing Joe Biden's climate change plans? What like what impact do you think that that will have on us here in Canada and and on the globe. We were hearing some pretty strong words from some other Democrats down in the United States in reaction to that. Yeah, it's concerning for sure, because the the programs that were proposed that are now on ice would have really helped accelerate climate action all around the world, certainly in the U.S. and including in Canada, because we are tightly linked to the U.S. market across our economy, including in the clean technology sector. So some specific things you might have seen out of that bill were uh, it, it would have enabled lower cost electric vehicles, lower cost batteries, uh, likely lower cost renewable energy like wind and solar. And all of those would have been beneficial in Canada, too, where Consumers would have had lower cost ways to reduce their own carbon footprints and to get access to some of this low carbon technology. Now, as disappointing as it is, I would say that the direction of travel is still very clear, that there is going to be more renewable energy, more electric vehicles, etc., because the market itself is, uh, is showing that those products are going to be lower cost and better. But it maybe has delayed that a few years because of the failure to act in the U.S. Hmm. And and I mean, a couple of years ago or a few years ago before the pandemic, when climate change was really, really top of mind and and top of the conversation, newscast, newscasts, all that sort of thing. I mean, delaying plans a few years that was made to sound like, you know, that could be catastrophic, like we've got to act yeah. on this now. How significant is that, that that plans could be delayed by a few years? It's significant. It's very significant. Um, you know, we are already basically out of time to try to avoid some of the worst impacts of climate change. And of course, with the heat waves and everything happening this week, we already are feeling some of the effects in the near term. So it's one of those tricky things where, you know, when you, when, when, there's not one exact tipping point that you can point to, but when someone's been a smoker all their life, you know, the best thing you can say is you hope they stop smoking soon. You can't say the next cigarette is the one yeah. that's necessarily going to give them cancer. Um, so we do have to act. We have to act as soon as possible. But when there are setbacks like this, the answer is not to give up. The answer is to figure out, well, what, what are our alternatives? What can we do instead? All right. All right. Thank you very much, Michael Bernstein, Executive Director of Clean Prosperity, Canadian nonprofit that works toward market-based solutions to the climate crisis. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. And we are going to be hearing more from the federal government today about what their plan is, what their proposals are. But first, I want to hear from you. Is the climate change crisis, maybe you don't think it's a crisis. I know there's certainly some people on the text board right now that would dispute that, but I do think it's a crisis. Is this top of mind for you or are you more focused on things like inflation, the war in Ukraine? all of that stuff give us a call 1-855-633-1010 send us a text message at 71010 i'm tamara cherry filling in for evan solomon we're going to be taking your calls coming up after the break
Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, Tamara Cherry here, broadcasting from Regina, Saskatchewan. It is a beautiful sunny day, but it has been hot the last few days. Yesterday, I think it was 33 degrees, um, and that's keeping in mind we don't really get the humidity that other parts of the country get. Well, I know when I was living in Toronto, it would not be unusual to have a week or two every summer of like 40, 41, 42 degrees with the humidex. And that was absolutely brutal, but we're definitely getting some hot weather here. Um, And we've got, we got a tornado warning last night and I've lost track of the number of tornado warnings that we've had here in Regina. It certainly didn't seem to be this way when I lived here uh, gosh, 16, 17 years ago, last lived here. Uh, but there's something happening. So what I want to hear from you is, is climate change top of mind for you these days? Because we've been talking about a whole lot of other things the last couple of years with the pandemic, of course, we've all been worried about our health, the health of our loved ones, uh, our jobs, job security, many of us, um, also talking, of course, about the war in Ukraine And now recently, inflation being through the roof and how that is hitting us so hard uh, on our grocery bill. So I want to hear from you. 1-855-633-1010. Is climate change top of mind for you? A New York Times article that was published yesterday found that it is not top of mind for voters in the United States, even though many Democrats in that country are reeling since one of their own, a Democratic senator, uh, essentially killed Joe Biden's climate change plans last week. And some people are calling this catastrophic for the environment, catastrophic for our entire planet. So I'm going to go to calls because I know that the lines are lighting up. Keep them coming. 1-855-633-1010. Let's start out with Irwin from Montreal. Irwin, uh, it looks like you're quite concerned about this. What are you thinking about the climate change uh, crisis these days? If we don't solve the problem, life on Earth as we know it will be eliminated. Uh, we could talk about inflation and all these other problems, but uh, greenhouse gases continue to mount. Uh, the tar sands operations in Alberta are horrible for the environment worldwide. Even if the oil isn't burned in Canada, because most of it goes for export, it's burned elsewhere. And the greenhouse gas emissions create havoc for everyone, including us. Uh, that's why we have droughts. That's why we have more forest fires in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, Tar sands oil at one point was unsustainable, but traditional oil from Alberta was worth money. Uh, Most of the tar sands oil is going for export, so that's a tragedy. That's why we need to shut them down. Uh, and, and Irwin, have you been have you been thinking about this? Has this been top of mind for you, even through all the other crises that we've been facing the last couple of years? For many years, it has been. Uh, it's very blindsided of us to ignore the problem. Uh, all these climate change deniers have some serious mental health issues. Uh, they believe that the planet's fine. That we have all the silliness about. Uh, storing carbon underground. That's been proven to be false and meaningless. It can't be done. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the point of uh, solving inflation and other problems when we destroy the very ecosystem that sustains life? 
What, what do you what do you make of the and maybe you haven't heard of it yet, but what have, what have you, what do you make of the Fed's announcement today, the paper that they released uh, basically proposing to use an, an industry specific cap and trade system or a modified carbon pricing system that would set a ceiling for emissions from the oil and gas sector? That's completely meaningless because uh, Justin Trudeau, who is key to destroy the environmental movement, wants to uh, extract every bit of oil from the tar sands, and he just approved uh, the offshore oil drilling off of Newfoundland, and he's approving all this oil and all this fracking and uh, LNG projects elsewhere, including BC. Uh, Justin Trudeau has no intention of protecting the environment, and he's fight with us losing biodiversity, hmm. as is jo- John Horgan at the uh, at DPBC, and so is uh, Jason Kenney at the uh, United Conservative Party in Alberta. These people believe that God will save everything. All uh, right, Erwin, we have to leave it there just because there's a bunch of people waiting in line, but I appreciate your call from Montreal. Uh, let's go to Robert. Robert, you're calling from, is it Marmora? Yes, I am. Sorry. Where is Marmora? That's in Ontario, isn't it? Yeah, it's you know um, it's north of Belleville. Um, oh yeah, on Highway Seven. Okay, wonderful. So, what, what are you line. thinking about with climate change today? I think it's overblown. Number one, the only way we're being punished in Canada by a really bad government—they have no concept of what they've done to people. In the last two years, we've had so much inflation. It's not just from the COVID; it's from high energy costs. Truckers put prices up. Stores put prices up. It's a never-ending cycle. And the only way we're going to clean up our environment is through technology. It's not by punishing some some poor person that has to heat their home or, you know. The, like a plumber told me on Highway 401 there back in the spring, they're getting all kinds of busted pipes now because people aren't keeping their furnaces up high enough in the winter. Hmm. I mean, it's a catch-22. It's just, it's it's stupid, the way things are. And the government, this electric car program, it's a farce. Because once you put your air conditioning on, and once you put in the heat in the wintertime, that battery goes from 600 kilometers down to 300. You know, yeah, I would agree that, that we, we certainly have a long way to go be, before electric vehicles are actually a practical solution for many people in, in this country, especially people who commute uh, long distances. Uh, Robert, I have to leave it there just because there's a bunch of people waiting in line. But thanks for sharing your views from beautiful Ontario. Jeff, uh, you're calling from Niagara. What what does climate change mean to you these days? You know, people in North America don't realize how bad climate change is around the world. I come from a country that shares the Amazon. The Amazon hmm. rainforest is on fire. Just Just think about that. The rainforest is on fire. If the rain yeah, that, that's considered fire, the lungs of our planet in exactly. many ways. Here's what we are doing. We are living a house now, and this is just a metaphor. We live in a house, the house is on fire, our kids are in the house, and we are worrying how we can get the jewelry out of the safe. Hmm. Listen, we are burning. This, this planet is in trouble, and that's why Democrats are going to lose. Listen what we need to do. Right now, oil price is, is viable. Why don't we take the money we are making from the oil and invest it in improving the technology for green energy? A caller before me said technology is the way to go, but technology costs money. Why don't we use the money we are making from the oil now to invest in improving the technology that we now know can work, batteries and other green energy 
And so we do two things at the same time. It doesn't have to be one thing. We have to be oil or green technology. We use the money from the oil to improve our technology. There's another thing. Plastic is a big problem for the environment. We know that. There are mm-hmm. students, I think, at either Dalhousie University or some other universities that have come up with, with plastic renewable to use as asphalt for our roads. Why don't we take advantage of these technologies that can solve the problems we now have and stop this debate about whether it has to be oil or green energy? It can be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff, thanks for calling. I'm going to try to squeeze in one more really quick call. Dave from Montreal, what are, you, what are your feelings on climate change amidst yeah, everything else there. in this yeah. world right now? I'm, I'm very concerned, actually, because over the past few summers, we haven't caught a lot of rain and uh, the humidity and it's very dry. Um, yeah, it, I'm worried about the summers to come because it just seems like it's the humidity is getting worse and worse every year. And uh, you know, the, like it's, we're just not getting a lot of rain, and and we, used, you know, we need the rain. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think that is climate change that's causing this problem. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much, uh, Dave, and thanks for keeping it brief. My apologies to Chris from London. I know you're waiting on the line too. We are just running out of time, but I appreciate that range of opinions shared with us. And uh, thanks for everybody who shared their opinions on the text board as well. Another crisis facing this country these days and for many years now is the housing crisis. Well, there is something interesting uh, going on in a city in Ontario, and they may be setting the tone for how affordable housing developers could operate in this country. Welcome back to The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Tamara Cherry, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The real estate reporter for the Toronto Star, her name is Tess Kalinowski, and I love reading her stories because there is so much to be discussed in the real estate beat these days, as there have been really for the last, gosh, how many years, especially in Toronto. Well, she wrote a story yesterday, I believe it was published, about not something going on in the Toronto real estate market, but something going on about two hours away in London, Ontario, where, as Tess writes, home prices that averaged $389,201 there in February 2019 soared to $825,221 by the time the market peaked this February. And that is according to the London and St. Thomas Association of Realtors. Now, there's something really fascinating going on there because I have heard in recent years, including here in Regina, Saskatchewan, where I'm broadcasting from, about nonprofit developers getting creative in creating communities that uh, include not only affordable housing, but but housing that also includes access to services that people that need that sort of housing generally need. Well, what's going on in London right now is an abandoned hospital. Sounds like it's going to be the future site of an affordable housing community. And what's really fascinating is that a number of nonprofit developers have come together to make this happen. And this really sounds 
quite unprecedented. And I wonder whether it could become a model for, for affordable housing developers across the country. Joining us now is Sylvia Harris. She's the chair of the Vision Soho Alliance, which is taking on this project. Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So just start from the beginning. This this property, I mean, this uh, London's Health Sciences Establishment, uh, Soho, once housed Western University's medical and nursing schools, and there was some pretty significant stuff that took place there. For example, uh, there was a team that discovered insulin as a treatment for diabetes. Uh, doctor there worked with the Canadian Royal Canadian Air Force researching compression chambers. Lots of groundbreaking discoveries, but it has been sitting vacant for a long time and came up for sale. So then what happened from your vantage point? Yeah, it actually was the uh, the vision of the London Community Foundation. They they have a couple committees and that are working on uh, at the forefront of uh, affordable housing and homelessness in community. And um, the folks that were serving on those committees uh, knew knew a lot of the nonprofits in the area and said, you know, we we know none of you all are big enough to take this on by yourself. So what if we uh, gathered you together and we imagine we could imagine what uh, could go on this site. So they brought us all together actually two years ago um, mm. in August 2020. And um, we, you know, we, we all have different strengths as organizations and different experiences. But when we bring those together, it was a, a perfect match um, in terms of taking this larger project on and, and um, breaking it down to some smaller bite sizes. So Indwell, um, has experience of converting heritage properties. And so we were excited and willing to, to take the two existing buildings on. And then the other groups um, will all be doing new builds and some of them um, a bit larger. So that, that fit well with the secondary plan that had been planned for the site. And then we um, waited for the documents to come out from the city, put in an offer and the city accepted Incredible, because I would think of, uh, you know, um, a property like that, and especially where there's the heritage component where you need to, you need to have the preservation built into your plan. I would think that nonprofits wouldn't stand a chance against the private sector. But, but now here you have it. Now you mentioned the vision. So tell me about this vision. What is this site going to look look like in the years to come? Yeah, so, um, so we are, it's we're imagining around 650 units. It's going to be all rental, which is fantastic because we, as we've heard about, you know, home prices potentially um, stabilizing or dropping, rent is having the opposite um, effect as rents continue to rise. So just adding more rental to the supply is going to be really important. And then of that 650 units, we're hoping to have at least uh, 50% affordable. So that will be 80% of the medium market rent. Um, Indwell, all of our, uh, the two, between the two heritage buildings, we're doing uh, about 140 units, and those will all be deeply affordable. So around mm-hmm. folks can pay on ODSP, Ontario Disability Support Program. We also have additional services that are in our buildings to help support people to stay housed. Um, what, what sort so, of services? Because I, I always love talking to people about, you know, the idea of meeting people where they are, not just assuming they need a roof over their head, but recognizing the other challenges and come along with that. So what sorts of services are we talking about? Yeah, it's really important for us as an organization to, to um, you know, help 
people as they, you know, for many people who've ex- either experienced homelessness or long-term hospitalization, there, there are other components that are really important to help them be able to um, maintain their housing for the long term. And that's what this whole project is about, a, a long-term permanent community for people to belong to. So that's, for Indwell, that's anything from just, you know, your basic kind of social work, relational support, um, some nurses on staff to help with uh, medical care and bridging that, some, some of the gaps between like health system and, and people in their home. Um, and then there's nutritional services that go along with that as well. Uh, as that's a key component to help people you know, be well and be healthy in their housing. And, and for anybody who's not familiar with the area, uh, something else that, that is significant about this place in particular is that it's just a five or 10 minute walk from London's downtown core, which mm-hmm. means that it will be easily accessible to the new bus rapid transit system. Yes, which is, is really exciting. And there is a, a quite a large development happening across the street. Um, there's a, over 200 units that are going to be constructed there. So we're part of... Um, really transforming the the Soho neighborhood. That's always been important to London, um, but since the hospital closed um, a while ago, it's really kind of taken the back seat in in terms of redevelopment. But we're hoping to bring bring that into a new chapter, that neighborhood into a new chapter. So, uh, for anybody listening now, uh, Sylvia Harris, we're 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 talking with Sylvia Harris, who's the chair of the Vision Soho Alliance in London. For anybody listening now from across the country, Sylvia, who maybe works in the nonprofit development space or affordable housing housing development space, what would your message be if they're thinking, "I wonder if we could do that," or "I could we could never afford to do that," you know, get an expensive mm-hmm. piece of land like that and come up with this sort of concept. I, I mean, it's always less, more. It's more affordable and more valuable when you, you when you come together um, with partners. Um, you can really uh, leverage each other's resources and experience. Um, we've all benefited not only you know financially from the shared development costs that we undertook, um, but also just really learning from each other in terms of design approach, how we support tenants, where we how we're working with the overall system. Um, it's just been incredible. And when we're looking at, you know, affordable housing, tackling homelessness as um, in our communities, we know that one group can't do it alone. So it doesn't really make sense for us to be, uh, you know, doing it bit by bit, project by project, although that is... Sylvia, I'm sorry, they're playing the music. I've got to end it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Coming up after the break, what's going on at Montreal's Children's Hospitals? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. I love it when people send me messages. I love it when people send me nice messages when I'm on the radio because they're not always very nice. But I, somebody shared a picture with me on Twitter after hearing me talk about my trip to Takaka Falls in I was going to say Alberta, but it's actually technically inside British Columbia last week. So thanks, Jan Giles, for sending me your picture from Takaka Falls. Uh, I received some last year when I was last week when I was tweeting about it as well. I love that. Okay, so on to a totally different part of the country. 
Uh, Montreal, something's going on in Montreal. The Montreal Children's Hospital um, is operating with at a critical level with an unusually high number of sick kids being brought to the ER there. Joining us now is Dr. Robert Barnes. He is the Montreal Children's Hospital's Associate Director of Professional Services. Dr. Barnes, thanks so much for taking the time today. Good afternoon. So what what is going on uh, at your ER these days, Dr. Barnes? The, uh, the issue that led to the exceptional alert yesterday was that we had uh, so many children who were sick enough to require an admission to hospital uh, that we were unable to send them to uh, enough of our beds uh, in the wards and so that uh, a large number of children who needed admission were still uh, in the emergency room and needed attention from our emergency teams. Uh, and that crowd uh, led us to have to uh, overflow a little bit and so that our low-priority uh, facilities of the emergency room were now being used for intermediate-priority uh, cases just because there was no other place for them. And so we put out an alert uh, to warn uh, the patients and families uh, for those uh, illnesses that were not urgent or not severe and would ultimately receive a lower uh, priority category at triage instead of what is unfortunately an unacceptable long wait even on a good day uh, mm. would be just about impossible yesterday and everybody deserved to know that the wait would be so long that it wouldn't even be a wait at all. They would just not be seen. Uh, and so that warning went out uh, so that uh, children with uh, minor illnesses would not be stuck in a waiting room chair for 12, 14, 16, 18 hours, whatever, uh, overnight um, to disturb the sleep patterns and the, and the eating and drinking patterns of someone who has a mild illness uh, in a hard waiting room chair is hardly a way to help children get better. And I'm sure that there's a lot of parents out there, myself being a parent of three young kids who would have appreciated that alert. Uh, now, I understand just to, to put this into perspective, Montreal Public Health listed the Children's Hospital ER occupancy yesterday at 192%. How does that compare to what your usual occupancy rate is? I guess the best way to describe that is that in the summertime, we usually are a whole lot less busy uh, than usual. Um, pediatrics follows a huge seasonal variation. Uh, we, our hospital is bursting in the winter time because of a number of viral illnesses uh, that get shared among children and families uh, throughout the colder months. And in the summertime, we're not nearly as busy uh, to the point where uh, some of our inpatient units uh, every summer, we, we don't staff them because there are no children who need us. Mm. And uh, in this last week, uh, that has turned on its head. Uh, we have a large number of children sick enough to need our inpatient units. And so we have uh, stretched ourselves uh, significantly uh, so that we have reopened some of those facilities that never need to be open in the summertime. Uh, we, we were partially successful at doing that in the middle of summer with everyone's vacation schedules and a number of staff who have to be off because they themselves are currently contagious with COVID-19. Mm. So it, it's a swirl of all of those things, but uh, the, the key thing is uh, we have way more children who need us in July 
than a typical July. We have stretched ourselves uh, everywhere that we can to go beyond what we usually need to do in July. And even then, uh, the children were spending too long in the emergency room when they should have been able to move up uh, to a bed on the floor. And that, that was behind the alert. I can tell you that uh, this morning we have lifted the alert uh, because of all of the extraordinary measures uh, that we put in throughout the hospital. And our teams have been absolutely phenomenal, including people coming in on their days off, uh, even some cutting short their vacations to join in on our urgent planning meetings or to come physically into the hospital to provide care. Um, so we have decompressed substantially. We have not decompressed fully, and so our emergency room is back to being crazy busy, uh, but not to the point where we have to uh, issue that alert. And so we've, hmm. we've made an announcement saying that the alert is no longer in place, but please remember that means still that if you have a, a lower uh, severity or lower urgency uh, of your particular illness, if you come, you will still have a very long wait, and uh, you must consider alternatives to an emergency room for those situations that do not absolutely require an emergency room. We, we're joined right now by Dr. Robert Barnes from the Montreal Children's Hospital, where yesterday uh, they were, their emergency room was at uh, nearly 200% capacity. Dr. Barnes, why are all these kids getting sick? Is this COVID? Is this just two years of you know, a lot of isolation and, and not being exposed to germs? What are you seeing? It's a good question. And no, it, it's not COVID-19 that is actually bringing uh, a large number of children uh, to our hospital in need of care. We are finding uh, COVID-19 uh, when we test because every patient who is admitted or is going to undergo surgery in the next uh, 24 to 48 hours is tested for COVID. So we know uh, who to isolate, what precautions to take, or whether we should defer the surgery. So we are finding it, um, but that is not the reason that we have so many sick children. We have a, a wide variety. We have uh, a large number of uh, babies who have come out of the neonatal intensive care unit because they've recovered enough that they don't need intensive care anymore, but they're not stable enough to go home just yet, so they need uh, a, a crib in our pediatrics ward. We have a number of uh, young people with chronic conditions that may have just flared up and therefore need uh, a particular attention either in one of our wards or in our pediatric intensive care unit. And we have a wide variety of infections, but it's both viruses and bacteria uh, that are causing the illness uh, severe enough uh, to need attention inside of our hospital for a certain number of days. Uh, but I would not want people to have the impression that uh, COVID-19 is the reason we have so many sick children. Mm. Um, perhaps something we should touch on, just given that you are telling people to stay away if it's not that serious or, or suggesting anyway. I know that for especially new parents, the, the slightest thing can seem like, you know, the house is on fire. So what should people be going to the emergency room for? And what should they not be going to the emergency room for? What should they maybe be calling their family doctor about? I, I would urge people across the country, this is not a Montreal thing, but this is uh, yeah. anywhere you happen to be, uh, uh, please remember the word emergency in the word emergency room and let us uh, remain uh, prepared for uh, the true emergencies that only we are able to help your children with. 
uh, fever in a newborn baby, anyone under the age of two or three months with a fever, that could be extremely serious because uh, uh, very young babies are vulnerable to uh, severe infections. Uh, any child uh, who is uh, desperately working so hard to breathe uh, that they are getting exhausted working so hard to breathe or their color is changing, uh, anybody who's uh, becoming dehydrated because uh, their illness uh, through vomiting or diarrhea or just not being able to eat and drink enough uh, is leading to uh, sunken eyes, changing of the texture of the skin, uh, a pasty mouth, uh, that's dehydration that could, uh, could, could need intravenous antibiotics. Um, parents' intuition is not a bad thing here, and uh, relying, uh, for, particularly for young, inexperienced parents, uh, relying on extended family and other more experienced parents also to uh, give you a good sense of is this. Dr. Bards, I'm sorry, I, I have to end it there. They're playing the Oscar acceptance speech music. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I am Tamara Cherry. Happy to be here filling in for Evan. And I was telling Chris, the technical producer, at the end of the last segment that I will do better tomorrow, I promise, because I I unfortunately failed to... um, cut off our, our good doctor from Montreal Children's Hospital when I should have. And it was all my fault. And I apologized to the doctor and I apologized to Chris. And he said, you're going to do better in the next segment. And I said, you know what? Yes, I am. Because our guest is the one and only Glenn McGregor, senior political correspondent for CTV News. And Glenn, you make this fill-in hosting stuff so easy. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mara. Just don't cut me off. <laughs> yeah well I, it's not me it's chris that brings up the oscar acceptance speech music so uh, i throw my hands up no it is my fault um okay so glenn we've got the story of two pats today patrick brown and pat king i am sure patrick brown would not like his name to be used in the same sentence as pat <laughs> king and i apologize for that but let's start off with patrick brown because patrick brown uh i've got a few clips i'm going to throw to you before we get into the nuts and bolts of this but patrick brain Brown has announced he is running for re-election in Brampton. After talking to my family, my most senior advisors, Savannah and Theodore, and of course, of course, Genevieve, that we've decided to put my name in again for mayor of Brampton. Uh, and I love serving the city of Brampton. Uh, this is truly um, an incredible place to live. He continued to say this. It has been the greatest privilege to serve the city over the last uh, four years, and I'm looking forward to the next four years. And he adds that the actions taken by the Conservative Party of Canada, and that is, of course, disqualifying him from the leadership race of late, have made it impossible to have a free and fair election. Unfortunately, the Conservative Party did not want to have a free and fair election. They did not want to have a democratic election. You know, we're still pursuing our legal options to make sure what was done is exposed. So Glenn McGregor uh, joining us now, senior political correspondent with CTV News. Glenn, does this signal, I know he said that he still has legal options that he's pursuing, but to you, does this signal the end of his fight to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada? Yeah, I mean, he was out of that race, I think, the moment that the party announced through their leadership 
uh, organizing committee that he had been disqualified. I mean, there was no bouncing back from that. He could have gone to court and tried to get some kind of order, an injunction or something, but it would not have worked. And even if it had worked, he would not have won. I mean, Pierre Poilievre is running away with this. Um, Mr. Brown's only hope, really, in this when, you know, when the race began, was somehow that the more centrist part of the party that uh, was drawn back into the fold by Jean Charest uh, might decide that Mr. Charest was kind of yesterday's news, but they still wanted someone who represented those same kind of values and maybe might have gotten behind Patrick Brown on a you know, a second, third, fourth ballot. Because remember, it's a, that tiered balloting system. Mm-hmm. So that if 50%, unless, unless one candidate gets 50% plus one uh, of the available points uh, in the first round, then it goes to the second round and then somebody drops off and you have this kind of horse trading that goes on uh, in the background. Uh, but that's all done in advance, unlike a, a convention, conventional party. So, yeah, so not a surprise um, that he, he did this. I mean, when we got in the ra- when he entered the race, we were looking at the... The, the calendars, the election calendars municipally, and realized that he was going to have to either decide to stay in it past the deadline, uh, which I think is coming up uh, pretty quickly, sometime in August, uh, mm-hmm. that you would have to declare if you wanted to seek the mayoralty of Brampton again. Uh, so obviously, you know, he, it wasn't going to happen for him at the federal level, uh, at least in the leadership. And he made it pretty clear that if he lost the leadership, uh, and Pierre Poilievre won, he would not stick around to run as an MP and potentially serve in a, a conservative government should uh, Mr. Uh, Poilievre lead the party uh, back to power. So I, I think I mean, he just had no other option. And he's a political animal. He's, he's run, you know, he, he was a member of parliament. He's mm-hmm. been a city councillor in, in Barrie, Ontario. I think that was one of his first uh, jobs. He sought uh, to be regional chair um, in, uh, in the GTA. Uh, that didn't really work. Uh, and of course, famously, he was leader of the Ontario PC party. Yeah. Uh, that didn't work out. And um, then he sought the mayoralty of Brampton and won it and now wants it back again. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't follow Brampton politics closely enough to tell mm-hmm. you whether or not he's got a shot of re-election. I would think as an incumbent, you always do. Uh, he's still got, you know, high name recognition in that community and probably going to depend a lot on which other candidates step forward to uh, run against him. Do you, do you think we're going to see his name uh, again in federal politics? He's a young guy. Uh, it's possible. Um, I don't know. I mean, but, you know, whether or not, you know, his reputation is, is uh, you know, as a guy who can win is battered by this process. Uh, mm. Possibly it is. Maybe it isn't. I mean, you know, there's always second acts, right? John Gray is in contention, right? In theory, well, and Patrick Brown has had a second act before, and he could have a third act and a fourth act. Like he he has, you know, come back from the dead before. Okay, so let's let's just jump over to the other Patrick now, Glenn. Uh, you were in an Ottawa courtroom this morning, from what I understand, following you on Twitter uh, for Pat King who is the, one of the organizers of the so-called Freedom Convoy. And I make no apologies for saying so-called. So just, yeah, you know, yeah. take it easy on the text board, people. Uh, what happened in court this morning? That's right. Mr. King was one of the most visible faces during that three-week occupation of the city. It's, he was out there live streaming. He was on the streets. Uh, he, you know, there's some dispute about whether or not he was truly a leader of that movement. Uh, but clearly he had sway and influence. And uh, he was arrested on February 18th, just as kind of the occupation came to an end after the federal government invoked the Emergencies Act. And he's been in uh, custody ever since. Uh, he's charged uh, multiple criminal charges, including mischief and 
uh, counseling to obstruct police. Uh, fairly, I mean, mischief, mischief sounds benign, but it is a serious charge. It can be a serious mm-hmm. charge, depending on the exact nature of the offense. Uh, he was denied bail initially, uh, appealed that decision, and in the course of that appeal process, the Crown alleges that he perjured himself when he was giving testimony, but he was additionally charged with perjury. So this was kind of a bail hearing today, a bail review hearing that, that took place last week, but the decision was handed down today on whether or not he can get bail on the original charges and also on the perjury charge. And the judge decided, yes, she would give him bail uh, with conditions. They're pretty strict conditions. He has, like some of the other people we've seen go through the courts in relation to the convoy, um, a list of, of non-communication lists of people he, he's not allowed to contact, people like Tamara Leach, Chris Barber, Tom Marazzo. These are people who are involved in the organization uh, of the so-called uh, Freedom Convoy. Uh, he also has to stay off social media, has to pull down his website, and he uh, has to abide by a curfew. He had to put up $25,000 of his own money to get out, and we're still waiting for that process because as of this hour, mm-hmm. he's not yet, we don't think, been released from the Ottawa courthouse. We've had our, our CTV news cameras out front, um, other journalists are there too, waiting mm-hmm. to see him come out and see what he'll see. But it hasn't happened yet. We've just had a, a, a group of supporters who are out there uh, yelling at journalists. <laughs> oh, yeah, you've, you've had your fair share of that already this year, Glenn. Yeah, I, I've spent yeah. many, many hours waiting outside courtrooms and court and, and courthouses yeah. for people to be released on bail over the years. So I hope that you have a nice sunny day. Can you just, we just got a minute left here, Glenn, but can you paint a picture for us of what it was like in that courtroom with those uh, Pat King supporters this morning? Yeah, so there's a small group of Pat King supporters in there. Some of them are wearing red shirts, saying free Pat King, saying political prisoner, because they think he was imprisoned for political reasons, not for the criminal charges that are uh, filed against him. Uh, he seemed kind of emotional when the judge read out uh, her decision. Uh, his uh, defense lawyer said he was, he was very affected by it, was actually in tears uh, at one point. So uh, he seemed, to, and she insists that he will be able to abide by those conditions uh, that have been placed on him. We know that was a problem for... Tamara Leach. Tamara Leach, uh, yes. People because she was released on bail, was living in Alberta, and then the Crown uh, believes that she breached her conditions by attending a, a Freedom Award gala and speaking to one of the people on her non-communications list. So uh, we'll see how this book plays out. Uh, there's going to be a free trial uh, probably at some point over the summer, uh, likely in August, and then mm-hmm. many months later down the road, uh, Mr. King will go on trial for these criminal charges. Oh, and we'll be watching closely, as I'm sure many of the uh, so-called political prisoner supporters will be as well. Glenn McGregor, Senior Political Correspondent for CTV News. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy that the acceptance speech music has not come on yet. Have a great day. Thanks, Tamara. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about wildfires in British Columbia, bringing back some uh, pretty nasty memories from what happened there last year. And people are worried about whether it might be happening again. I'm Tamara Cherry, in for Evan Solomon. This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, it's seeming like deja vu from the outside anyway uh, for the community of Lytton, British Columbia, which of course made headlines last year for wildfires uh, putting putting people through all sorts of hell, I guess we could say. Uh, well, there's a wild, wildfire that has started on Thursday 
a new wildfire that has grown to 17 square kilometers, had grown to 17 square kilometers as of Sunday afternoon. People there understandably worried considering what they have experienced in the past. We're joined now by Acting Chief of Lytton First Nation, John Hogan. John, thanks so much for taking the time to join to talk to us about this. Yes, good morning, Tamara. So, so just uh, for anybody that is having trouble remembering what happened last year, if you could just walk our listeners through what your community faced last year. Well, last year was unprecedented. We experienced three days of extreme heat in the heat dome, and on the third day, the record-breaking temperature for Canada uh, fire was started in the southern end of our main community, and it destroyed the major part of the community, as well as all the homes on one of our reserves except for one, and then three other reserves had significant home losses as well. Mm. And and what impact did that have on your community, John? Well, it wiped out the major business portion of the community, the stores, the medical doctor emergency center, the police station, the post office, the bank, you name it, it was gone in the downtown core. So before we get to the fire that that you're currently faced with, I mean, these last months, it it seems unfathomable building back again after that. But what, what has your community been doing to build back from that over these last months before you were hit by this latest fire? We've done a lot. We've created temporary homes in our community to re-establish people living in the community, and that's going forward. We've set up temporary medical center, post office, and there's a temporary Scotiabank in the community. There's services coming in, and people still have to go at least one hour to do grocery shopping and pick up prescriptions and that type of thing. Wow. Uh, one hour to get groceries seems absolutely crazy right now, considering the high price of gas and the high price of groceries. So we have That's this true. this wildfire now that just started on Thursday. Tell us what the situation is now. Well, the situation is that we have a lot of wildfire fighters on the ground and we have people attacking on the front lines and there's air support and those kind of things. We have people delivering water and propane and gas to things. And part of the slowdown on attacking the fires, we're restricted. We can't get access to one area because of the high water in the Fraser River. We normally have a ferry that can bring goods and supplies to the west side of the Fraser River. That's out of commission because of extreme high water levels. Hmm. What, well, I mean, we're, we're joined right now by Acting Chief of the Lytton First Nation, John Hogan. Um, Acting Chief, what what are your community members feeling right now? What are they saying to you? What's going through your mind these last few days? Well, they want access to information and they want to be kept up to date. On Some of them have homes there, but there's no hydro in the homes. They want to be able to return home to look after their pets and be able to mitigate any losses from stored foods and freezers and those kind of things. So there's 
some stress and, and that's to be expected because people are on the move and people have a lot of um, things they want to be in control of. Mm-hmm. And and can you tell me, like, were there any lessons that were learned from last year that that are that you think might be able to help you out this time around? Well, for sure, it's a different fire because it's more wildfire based. It's the homes over there were really spread out. They weren't uh, connected like the town fire and. There's just a way we've been able to come together as uh, emergency responders and those type of things that are more significant this time. The other Mm -hmm. time, we had been scattered in all directions, so some of our leadership was in other areas two hours away from our community and those kind of things, and we really had to rely on technology to keep our communications under underway. Now, I know when these wildfires happen, and I'm, I'm not speaking specifically about your community, but but all over the place in the United States, we always hear about people who ignore the evacuation orders to stay back and protect their property, protect their animals, as you said, uh, and to help fight the fire. Are you seeing that with this this time around now? Are there people that have stayed behind or are most people oh, yeah. um, not yeah. ignoring the evacuation order? And some of those people that stayed behind are very experienced. We had three individual men from our community. We have a huge gymnasium, which we were using as a release center. They had groceries and supplies and whatnot in that area next to the Stein River. Those three men single-handedly saved that building from being burned. So, Wow. How, how, did they do, how did they do that? Tell us that story. Well, I don't know the full details. I just know who they are and what they were able to accomplish. But that's going to be more their story to tell. But we mm-hmm. do know that they accomplished that building. In- incredible. From and, and these three men are still in the community as this fire rages? Yes. Wow. I imagine there's going to be so many stories like that that will be coming out in, in the days and the weeks to come. Uh, Acting Chief Hogan, is there anything that your community needs now that, that, that you know, did, you'd like to get a message out? We did have a thunderstorm last night with rain, but it wasn't significant enough to contribute to the fire effort. But uh, mm. there are several agencies and people helping our community right now, and it would be just time to connect with those that have suffered loss of homes that we have to know where we're going to assist them in accommodation and to start rebuilding their lives. Is there anywhere that you would point to for anybody who's wanting to donate money to help these people who have been um, misplaced or are, are suffering with, you know, the a lack of access to food, that sort of thing, anywhere that you would recommend people donate right now, or is it too early to say? It's kind of early, but they could check out our website, lfn.band, L as in lion, F as in Frank. The Lytton First Nation. Yes. LLFN.band. I will tweet that out. Uh, My Twitter handle for anyone listening is at Tamara Cherry. I'm heading to your website right now. Um, I imagine you guys will have 
updates on there if uh, if there's any other ways that people can help out. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And I just want people to be safe out there, know where they're putting their cigarettes out and those kind of things. We all have to be fire smart. Yeah. One, yeah, well said. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to join us. Uh, this is Acting Chief John Hogan uh, at the Lytton First Nation. Uh, Acting Chief, we'll, we'll all be thinking about you and your community in, in the days to come and, and hoping for some rain out there. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks to you and all your listeners. Take care. You too. Uh, okay, coming up after the break, we are... Moving out of this world, out of out of all these different signs of climate change and whatnot, to galaxies far, far away. You may have heard about or seen the images that were released recently from the James Webb Telescope. This is the most powerful telescope ever made, showing galaxies far away from our galaxies. Well, there's a Canadian connection there. We're going to speak with an astronomer who is behind some of this work coming up after the break. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I am so excited for this next conversation. Excited. I get so excited when talking about outer space because my imagination starts flying, but I also get incredibly frustrated because what is out there? Are we alone? I can't believe that we are alone. You know, what comes after infinity? All of that stuff. I don't, as excited, as interested as I get, I could probably not come even close to the excitement and interest of our next our next guest. Dr. Chris Willott is an astronomer who's based at the Hertzberg Astronomy and Astrophysics Research Center in Victoria. Dr. Willott, thank you for taking the time. Oh, hi, Tamara. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so we're talking to you today because of something that made big news out of the United States. But it turns out, as you know very well, that there's a significant Canadian connection to the James Webb Space Telescope that we've been hearing so much about. And of course, this is the telescope from which we we saw our first images early last week, I believe it was, of galaxies far, far away. Before we get into your work on this, um, Dr. Willott, start out by telling me where were you, what were you doing when those those images were released? Yeah, so last week uh, I was at in Halifax and I was meeting with some of my colleagues. Um, we we're all going to be working with the, uh, the James Webb Telescope data. In fact, we started working on it last week as soon as it got released. So um, we all gathered around a TV and we watched as uh, President Biden made the uh, first release of images. And we all kind of jumped up and ran to the TV and wanted to get a closer look because uh, those first images of uh, distant galaxies was really spectacular. And that's the kind of data that we're going to be working on for the next few years. Now, it surprised me when I was reading this story about your connection to this, that that would be the first time that you would get to see those images. Because tell us now about the role that, that you and your team played in the creation of this telescope and getting those images. Yeah, so uh, Canada played a really important role in this telescope. Um, we provided uh, the fine guidance sensor, 
which is a crucial part of the telescope that makes it point in the right direction. So for every single observation, the Canadian-made uh, fine guidance sensor is going to be making sure that the telescope doesn't wobble around and remains fixed so we can get really sharp pictures of all the different astronomical targets we want to get. And then in addition to that, Canada also uh, provided one of the four science instruments. And the science instruments are the things that collect the light when it's been focused by the mirrors of the telescope. And basically then, you know, they have detectors like uh, cell phone cameras. And on those detectors, we're recording all the images and uh, also lots of uh, spectroscopy. And so the Canadian instrument is going to be really critical for several areas, um, in particular for the study of distant galaxies. Um, we're going to be able to work out the distance uh, to all, many hundreds of galaxies uh, every time we, we take an image with the Canadian instrument. And then also we're going to be uh, measuring the chemical composition of uh, molecules within the atmospheres of other planets um, in solar systems outside of our own. And that is significant for anybody who might, their brain might be spinning and, and hasn't had a chance to process that. That is significant because that is the sort of information, and correct me if I'm wrong, that can tell us whether there's a possibility for light, life on those planets, right? Yeah, uh, we're not looking for ET directly. Um, what we're doing yes. is trying to un understand the, the, the properties of the planets that go around other stars in, in our own galaxy. And in particular, we can measure the composition of those atmospheres and measure things like the, the pressure and temperature. And so we can really kind of build up an idea. And, you know, we have many thousands of these galaxies, uh, planets that have now been discovered around other stars. Um, so we've been discovering lots of those planets recently. But what we haven't been able to do is actually go out and measure what's in their atmospheres. And now we can actually do that. So you said that you, you, your team has already been working on with some of this data since since these first images were released last week. What what have you been learning? What have you learned from that one image that was released? Where are we now compared to where we were, you know, a few months ago or even a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, we're really just scratching the surface here of uh, what the telescope can provide. So these first images were just uh, a few days worth of data from this telescope. And the telescope is now in operations. It you know, just started a few weeks ago in its regular science operations. And we expect it to last for many, many years. So you know, this is really just the start. And there's a lot of scientists who are now looking at the data and uh, trying to pull out as much information as we can from these first images. Um, but at the same time, there's more data being taken all the time. And we can expect to get a lot of new results coming you know, over the next few months and then and years as well. So was there any, was, has there been anything that has surprised you so far? Um, I mean, for, for me, it was really just how, just how different some of these images look from how they've looked with the Hubble telescope. Hmm. Because, um, you know, we have, we're used to seeing spectacular images from the Hubble telescope, uh, but that's mostly in the optical part of the, the wavelength regime. Um, the James Webb works mostly in the infrared part of the, uh, the wavelength spectrum. Um, so we're seeing a different type of objects. We're going to be able to see things much further away um, than we have before, and really measure the properties of those things uh, very far away in a way that we haven't before. Um, one of the things that we saw the other day was uh, some uh, some spectra where we can see um, certain, certain emission lines that come from um, excited uh, atoms in galaxies, and that allows us to measure the properties of the gas in the galaxies and the distances. Um, so it's kind of a whole level of detail that we're able to get out of these data that it's going to take a, a few days and a few weeks for us to process it all and uh, start to start to get uh, lots of science results out. 
you you've been working on this project for a long time. I understand like 16 years working on this project alone. Uh, what is, is there any one burning question that you're really hoping that the data that comes out of this telescope will be able to answer? Um, for me, well, I work in the study of galaxies in the very early universe. So I'm looking to see that how far back in the early universe can we see the first galaxies that formed and what were those galaxies were like. Because um, we know that when we look at galaxies nearby today, they look very different to the kind of galaxies that formed early in the universe. Um, so I want to go right back to the beginning and see what galaxies looked like when they first formed. And because we know that they probably had different uh, physical properties than the, the galaxies that we that form today. And you, we can basically trace the whole uh, history of the universe for 13.8 billion years of it. Wow. That this stuff is just so remarkable to me. Um, like I said, my mind is blown. You have such a fascinating job. And I also imagine, Dr. Willot, that you have such a different outlook on life uh, than many people here on Earth do, because this project shows us just how infinitesimally small we all are. So I, I so appreciate you you sharing your stories and, and your enthusiasm for this. And I would love to have you back, to hear you back on the show. I don't know if I'll be filling in for Evan at that time, but as you learn more, I'm so excited to see what is to come on this. So thank you, Dr. Will Ott, for your incredible work on this and, and congratulations to you and your team. And please keep us posted on all of your exciting discoveries. Thanks. It was great to talk to you today. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I, you know, it's funny, like I, I was saying earlier in the show, being out in uh, Banff National Park, we went out to Moraine Lake and they've got these, these binoculars set up just to see, see if you can see some wildlife on the other side of the lake. What an incredible thing it is uh, for somebody to be able to look at these images and see galaxies that were created billions of years ago. Absolutely incredible. Well, we've come to the end of the show. I don't know how we've already arrived here yet. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon all this week. I hope Evan is off enjoying the sunshine, but part of me thinks that he might be waiting outside the court courthouse uh, for Pat King to come out. We'll see. Anyway, I'll talk to you tomorrow.